This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hey friends, welcome to Almost Heretical. We have a bit of a different episode this week. It's Tim and my birthday this week, so we took some time to get away and plan and prepare for the future of the show, and also just to enjoy the amazing Oregon coast with our families. But we wanted to share a really important lesson on Jesus and self-defense. This is a huge hot topic in our world and in the church, and many Christians believe in the right to bear arms and have connected that belief to the teachings of Jesus. Then there's this other large group of Christians who believe that this is completely wrong, but they can't always find a defense for their view. This week, Tim jumps into the story of Jesus and kind of what Jesus' whole goal was. We hope this can live as a resource for you and might just be something you send along to a friend. All right, I'm going to pass it over to Tim. Many Christians oftentimes, and especially in American evangelicalism, have looked to Luke 22, where Jesus tells his disciples to uh, get a sword and argued for an ethic of self-defense and even armed self-defense as Christians. And what I want to do here is, as briefly as possible, show how mistaken that is and show that the intent of both Luke, the rest of the gospel writers, and the apostles— was the exact opposite of that, and that the point of the story they were telling was that Jesus was arrested unjustly and ironically as though he was another leader of a violent criminal rebellion, when in fact he represented the exact opposite of that. So first, let's look at all the arrest scenes in the four Gospels, which are all a bit different, but which all consistently point out the same theme of the irony of Jesus being arrested as though he were an armed criminal. So in Mark 14, you get the scene where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And then it says in verse 46, The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And very similarly, Matthew, in chapter 26, Jesus replies to Judas, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd again, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So these two are very similar. What Matthew adds is an explicit rebuke. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So he he not only rebukes his disciple for drawing it out and cutting off the ear, but he actually makes a universal claim that essentially taking up the sword is always the wrong choice. Violence will always beget more violence. But he repeats this line, am I leading a rebellion? 
And uh, other translations have it, uh, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? Or have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? So in both these, Mark and Matthew, Jesus is pointing out that he's been in public, in the spotlight, even in the synagogues teaching, obviously not as an armed rebel as this uh, military criminal. And so why now are they arresting him, ironically, as though he were an armed criminal, as though he were some sort of military enemy to the state? So he's drawing attention to the injustice that he's being falsely arrested. And in Matthew, he explicitly rebukes the use of the sword. And you note here that in neither of these, Mark or Matthew, is Peter actually named as the one who uses the sword. And then in John 18, same scene, Judas leads the armed guard to the garden to arrest Jesus. It says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? So here the main point's the same. Jesus is willingly turning himself in with zero self-defense and no fight. And now John says it's Peter specifically who fights. And Jesus again rebukes, saying, put your sword away. So the theme is consistent throughout these three. And in Matthew and Mark, they explicitly say this ironic event, Jesus being arrested as though he were an armed criminal, is to fulfill the scriptures. And so the remaining questions are, from these three, what scriptures was this arrest in Gethsemane fulfilling? And the second question is, why did any of Jesus' disciples have swords in the first place? And so we'll see as, ironically, Luke 22 answers both of those questions. So Luke 22, beginning verse 31 Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. It's a quote from Isaiah 53, 12. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. And then you get to the garden, the same scene that we just saw in Matthew, Mark, and John. And one of Jesus' followers says, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And strikes the high priest. And Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? And repeats that same line, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. So here Luke gives the explanatory backstory. They're at the Last Supper, 
when Jesus specifically told his disciples to go against their normal rule, which was not only did not have any weapons, but they didn't even carry a bag or extra clothes. And he tells them to acquire a couple weapons. Why are they to do this? Explicitly, it's to fulfill this prophecy from Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant would be falsely arrested as an armed rebel leader or a, a military criminal. So Luke answers a question of which scriptures were to be fulfilled. It's Isaiah 53, which is describing this false arrest. And so the whole point of Jesus commanding them to get their swords is not that he's changed the ethic that's been consistent all the way through of the movement. It's basically to act out this guise to further make clear that Jesus is being arrested as though he is with a group of armed criminals, even though that is precisely the opposite of the truth. So look at it. How many disciples are there with Jesus? There's 11 left. Judas has gone off to betray them. And they immediately, at the Last Supper, before going to the garden, come back with two swords, and Jesus says, that's enough. In other words, they just needed to satisfy the bare minimum of having more than one sword to appear as a group of armed criminals. So in other words, Jesus' very command to get swords, which people today often point to as an affirmation of self-armament and self-defense, is itself one of Jesus' sharpest repudiations of self-defense. The whole point was to act out the opposite of what Jesus had held to all along, which was non-violence, non-self-defense. And the focus in every gospel account is on the false and ironically unjust nature of Jesus' arrest and on how Jesus responds with radical nonviolence to that violent injustice. And just quick note here, there, there are two words of significance worth doing a, a brief word study. Uh, the first is this word sword. It's makaira in Greek. And it can mean short sword, dagger, large knife, or even carving knife. So some careful readers have noted that in Luke's gospel, the disciples clearly don't go anywhere or don't have much time to go anywhere in between the Last Supper and the garden in which they acquire these swords. And so some have actually implied that they're basically big kitchen knives, not military weapons that a soldier would have. And some scholars have even suggested that it, they could have even been the special carving knives used to prepare the lamb for the Passover meal. So this is not like they go to the local military depot and arm themselves to the teeth. They basically grab a couple knives from the kitchen and Jesus says, okay, that'll do. We'll at least look like we're partly armed if a couple of you guys have knives. And the second word is uh, this transgressors or criminals word. And the Greek is anemone. And it can basically mean a lawless one or a criminal. And the important point here is that those who take up the sword, those who are armed, are those who can rightly be called an anemone, a violent rebel or a criminal against the state. And so this is why Jesus sees it fitting for them to take up this guise and portray themselves as armed, is that would rightly deem them essentially this kind of violent military criminal, which Isaiah 53 has said the suffering servant would be numbered amongst these armed criminals. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? 
Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> so this then is how you answer the question of how do you pair Luke 22 and this idea that Jesus tells his disciples to get weapons with the very clear, consistent ethic throughout all of Jesus's life and ministry and teachings which is that they're not to protect themselves, not to arm themselves, and they're actually to love their enemies, pray for those who persecute them, and do good to those who hate them. So in Matthew 5 and Luke 6, you get stuff like, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Because if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So the whole ethic that Jesus organized his movement of disciples around, his kingdom ministry around, and that he trained them to live out was to respond to evil, to injustice, to oppression, to the empire, not with more violence, but with this crazy response of doing good in return to evil. And it's exactly what Paul picks up as the ethic of the church. And you see this in Romans 12. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Practically quoting Jesus from the Gospels. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the main ethical teaching of Jesus' movement and the church was this commitment to a nonviolent, loving response to one's enemy. That means that there's no situation in Jesus' mind or in Paul's mind that warrants self-defense. There's no exception to this rule. The way to overcome violence and injustice is not more violence, but self-sacrificial love. The way Paul refers to this in referring back to Proverbs is this functions in a way of heaping burning coals on one's head. In other words, it, it subverts the whole violent system in the first place. And this is what Jesus explicitly taught, trained, modeled, and then lived out to its furthest extreme in order to universally validate this idea. 
If the injustice of God himself being tortured, humiliated, and executed isn't an exception to this ethical rule, then nothing is. So if Jesus considered his own self-defense, or even the defense of his disciples trying to protect him, as a valid exception to this rule of loving your enemy and, and nonviolent resistance, then there is no exception in Christ's church. And that gets us to look a bit more carefully at Isaiah 53. Now, interestingly, Isaiah 53 is one of the most common Old Testament passages that Christians go to to talk about the atonement uh, and the forgiveness accomplished through the cross. But I think what's interesting is that most of the New Testament writers don't point to Isaiah 53 that way. And actually, there are only six explicit quotations or references to Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. Uh, and then one later uh, insertion in Mark 28 by a later editor. And none of those focus primarily on the cross. Instead, they actually focus on the same thing that the gospel stories of Jesus' arrest are focusing on, which is specifically his arrest, the ironic injustice of the way he's arrested and why he's arrested, and then his radical response to the violence and the injustice of that arrest. So you have one reference in Matthew 8 to Isaiah 53, 4, that Jesus took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. In John 12 and Romans 10, you have a reference to Isaiah 53, 1 to make sense of Israel's unbelief in the Messiah. And then in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian, and then in Luke 22, as we just looked at, Isaiah 53:12 is quoted, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And similarly, in Acts 8, you have the Ethiopian reading the book of Isaiah, and the quotation that Luke, the author, puts in there is from Isaiah 53, 7, predominantly. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? So in that section as well, it's highlighting this ironic injustice of the way Jesus was arrested and his radical response to it, which is, not only did he not fight to defend himself physically with weapons, he didn't even speak out in his own self-defense. And then the last one is in 1 Peter. And I'll read the whole thing in chapter 2, 19 through 25. Peter writes, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. End of quote. And then Peter goes on saying, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Again, another quote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. One more quote from Isaiah, By his wounds you have been healed. For, and yet another quote, You were like sheep going astray, end quote, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this year, in First Peter 2, is the most obvious and dramatic reference to Isaiah 53 in giving meaning to Jesus and the cross. And the main point is explicitly that Christ gave us an example to follow by refusing to retaliate, 
doing no violence, making no threats. And it's Peter writing this. Remember in John's gospel, John says he names the disciple that pulled out the sword and cut off the soldier's ear. He says it was Peter that did this. And I'll reference here uh, a scholar who's done uh, some good work on this, wrote a paper and uh, also did a podcast named David Burnett, and uh, it's called The Sword and the Servant. And in it, he just takes a deeper dive, uh, if you're interested in diving even further into this, at Luke, specifically in Luke 22. And he shows that the whole narrative structure of Luke is presenting the unfolding arrest story as a series of betrayals. And Peter is at the center of this. And the the pinnacle of this is this act of taking up arms and cutting off a soldier's ear. The use of violence, which makes it so that Jesus' own disciples can be rightly portrayed as transgressors, as these armed criminals, actually is the pinnacle of the betrayal of Christ by his disciples in Luke. And Peter's at the heart of that, according to John, which means Peter, more than any other disciple, didn't get this, was the slowest to understand, most in need of being rebuked by Jesus, and then, because of his acts of betrayal, was most in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with Christ, which we see in later in the Gospel of John, after this betrayal. So the fact that it's Peter's own words who are saying and defining what Christ meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me, is specifically to follow this example of refusing to retaliate when oppressed, when suffering injustice, refusing to take up arms just as he himself had done. In other words, Peter puts forth his own use of violence in using that sword or kitchen knife, whatever it was, in the garden as an example of what it looks like to not follow Jesus, as an example of going astray. And he suggests that those who refuse to respond to injustice with violence are those who truly follow in Christ's footsteps and bear the wounds and sins of the world on its behalf. And this, to me, is is part of the linchpin uh, in this argument, is that Peter himself, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of, of coming to fully understand what Jesus was trying to do and teach the entire time, that Peter who used to believe in arming and defending himself and his idea of religion, is now the one who's saying that is to explicitly miss the point and to fail to follow Christ. To follow Christ is to follow his example of nonviolence, non-retaliation, non-self-defense. So in conclusion, the idea that Jesus condones violent self-defense amongst his followers is literally an indefensible position. If you read the Bible carefully, as it's intending for us to read it, you simply cannot come away with an ethic of self-armament and self-defense as a Christian. What it means to follow him, to pick up one's cross, is explicitly defined as following his example of refusing to respond to violence with violence. To Peter and to Paul, those who seek to see Jesus as affirming of military thinking and personal self-defense are, like Peter before the cross in the garden, Those who have not yet grasped the revolutionary truth of the gospel, they are those who do not understand what it means to follow Jesus and hence are not in the act of following in Jesus's footsteps. As in Luke, those who bear arms in order to defend themselves or their idea of religion are those who misconstrue Christ as something he is not, indeed as something he died to show that he is not, which is a violent militaristic leader. Remember, the reason Jesus told the disciples 
to go act out this guise of arming themselves for this moment, even though they never before or never after would carry arms, is specifically to fulfill this idea in Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant would be one who is falsely arrested as being a part of or leader of a group of armed criminals. Meaning, Jesus was participating in his own misconstrual and misunderstanding, his own unjust false arrest. So for us to repeat the same mistake of those disciples who didn't understand the plan was never to use those swords. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. We do the same thing today and misconstrue Christ as something that he is not. And this is the consistent function of Isaiah 53 within the New Testament to specifically reveal Jesus as the nonviolent, non-retaliatory suffering servant who rather than defend himself against sin, bears our violent sin by suffering under it, refusing even to speak out in his own defense, let alone to defend himself violently. And once you've seen this, you can go back and read Isaiah 53, and it all just seems to pop out so clearly. Starting in verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears was silent, so he did not open his mouth. So he didn't defend himself even with words. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression. That's that same word, anomia, where we got the idea of transgressors. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Again, it's the same word, transgression or anomia. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. So you can see the main point. He did no violence. He was not an armed criminal, but he was killed on behalf of the armed criminals who not only were the Pharisees and priests coming to arrest him in the garden who had armed themselves as armed criminals, but then his own disciples who were originally just meant to play the guise of armed criminals. And then Peter makes the mistake of actually becoming one by using that sword fulfills this story that Jesus, the perfectly nonviolent one, would ironically, tragically be murdered as the leader of a violent rebellion. That is the point here. That's the point of Jesus telling the disciples to get the sword in Luke 22. And it, ironically, the same passage that Christians want to use to defend self-defense is actually Jesus's sharpest repudiation for his people, his followers, for Christians, that there is simply no exception to the rule that the calling for Christians is always to follow Jesus by refusing to defend ourselves, especially by refusing violence as a means of self-defense. All right. Well, there you have it. I don't even know what repudiation means, but we wanted to do this episode in light of the school shootings that seem to happen each week in our country. It seems like after each one, there are people claiming the name of Christian who make a case connecting Jesus to the quote-unquote, God-given right to bear arms. We have Christians saying that the answer to children killing other children with guns is to give the teachers more guns. We have churches installing armed guards in their buildings. Some of the biggest proponents of war and the death penalty in our country are Christians, and they use Jesus to defend their stance. Listen, the point of this episode isn't to say that you're an evil person if you want to defend yourself. We're just saying it's impossible to make a defense of that view with the way of Jesus. 
Jesus ruffled many feathers in the religious community with his ethic of nonviolence and self-sacrifice. And we know that this view still ruffles a lot of feathers today. But I hope that this episode will help as a resource to share with those you care about and that it helps solidify this case in your own heart. And so thanks for listening. We're a relatively new show, so we could use your help in spreading the word. It would help a ton if you could share an episode with a friend. Also, leaving a review on iTunes helps a lot. And we'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, or your own story. We read every single email that comes to contact at almostheretical.com. Talk to you next week.